Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring, the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. Joining me in Centering today is Catherine Miller, attorney Catherine Miller from Miller Law Group. We're going to be talking today about what mediation is, what it isn't, how it works, how it doesn't work, and if we have time, and I so want us to have time, Catherine, I really want you to tell us how to hire the right attorney. We need an inside view and you have nine tips to hire the right divorce attorney and we desperately need this help. So Catherine, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You give a fresh perspective to mediation and how it can and can't be used. So let's just start with something very basic. What is mediation and how does it work? Yeah. So mediation is a voluntary facilitated process where the parties work with a neutral mediator and that mediator might or might not be a lawyer. But the mediator's job is to help the parties identify the issues that they need to resolve, gather the information that they need in order to solve those problems. And that information duty is external information. So the kinds of things we normally think about, what's in the bank, what's the house worth, you know, whatever it is. It could be what's the employment contract say and all that stuff, the outside stuff. But it's also internal information about what's important to each person so that they can articulate that better for themselves first, because of course that's really important, and then for the other person. And then helps the parties generate various options and test those options against what's possible and what's important to them and what their criteria are for the resolution of the issues. And then through that process of back and forth, brainstorming options, generating uh, what the different ways that we could work it out and comparing that against what's important to them, then work through ultimately to an agreement. And the mediator might be writing a term sheet that for a document, a legal document to be written by somebody else or by the attorneys. Uh, and sometimes the attorneys are part of that process and sometimes they're outside the room. But at the, its core, that's what mediation is. What is the role of the mediator in mediation? And this is where I want, you're going to be clarifying misconceptions for a lot of people. Yeah, the role of the mediator is not to decide what it is that's the right decision. And sometimes people think that they come to mediation, the mediator is going to just be like a judge or an arbitrator and decide this is you know what you should do. But no, that is not the role of the mediator. The role of the mediator is to help the parties create a container and create a safe place to have difficult conversations and to help them actually have conversations that they were unable to have for themselves. You know, so lots of times, Judy, people think that mediation won't work because they haven't been able to talk about these things at the kitchen table or at Starbucks or at a diner. But that's exactly why you go to mediation, because it's That's the mediator's job. And so even just to give you like a little bit of a window into what that could look like, 
that they, you know, that a part, a husband and wife are having an argument and, you know, a lot of conversations for people who are divorcing between the soon to be divorcing spouses feels like an argument. And I know that from personal experience, not just professional experience, but so what instead, if each the wife and the husband or each spouse turns to the media and says, this is what's going on for me, right? And the other one listens to that. That's such a powerful shift in the way the conversation is happening that it allows things that feel really stuck just to move a little bit and where it seemed completely out of the question that they were able to work through the issue at some resolution, a glimmer of hope now comes in and they can see possibility where there was none before. I loved a couple of things that you said. Mediation is different than the conversation that has previously been conducted in the kitchen, at the diner, in the car. And that is exactly that. I think mediators are worth their weight in gold when they can take an existing difficult conversation and move it forward. Because the other thing that you said, which was so spot on, see, we can't, we, we can't agree. See? And then they, they want help. I mean, they're not saying it to be difficult, but they're, they're saying that to show we can't get past where we think we need to be. And of course you can. That's fine. That's where the mediator takes over, right? And processes differently for the client. Yes. And, you know, uh, you know, there's something called attribution error. That, that is uh, taken from, I don't know, from some uh, form of, th- of therapy, which don't quote me, I don't know what it is, attribution error. An attribution error says that we judge ourselves based on our own intent, right? So maybe I hurt you, but I'm still a good person because I was coming from a, a good place and I hurt you because, you know, it mistakenly, or I hurt you because you hurt me first, but we, I judge myself based on my own intent. I'm a good person. I'm coming from a good place. But we judge each other based on the, uh, on the impact of their actions upon us. So you hurt me. You must have intended to hurt me. So you're bad, right? So this sort of false dichotomy, this false paradigm of right and wrong, good and bad, comes into these discussions, especially when people are locked in what I think of as the conflict trap. And they keep having the same conversation over and over and over again. And this is what the other person hears. Like Charlie Brown's parents, because you just get off onto this thing, into the conflict trap. So whether or not the other person is saying something different or not, you're so conditioned to feel like they don't understand me. They don't get me. If they only understood where I was coming from, they'd see it my way. Right. But that's not what happens. And the, and the more you get into this trap, then the harder it is to change it. Catherine, you you couldn't be more perfect for this conversation. I was flashing on a mediation that I had years ago. He had had an affair. She couldn't let go. She had always made more money and it became an issue. She inherited money. So her wealth became an issue for him. His affair became an issue for her. He apologized. She made more money. He didn't want spousal support. She heard nothing. All she heard was, I'm so upset with you because of the affair, and therefore I should get whatever I want. Yeah. 
the exactly. uh, the attribution error. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're a bad person because you hurt me by having an affair and you've betrayed me. So that's all there is. Right. Yeah. I, I don't and, and I not, can't say beyond that. And and not to minimize any of that. I, I certainly don't. And I don't think you do either. But life happens. Stuff yeah. happens. We are imperfect people. And mediators really how how much can you actually sort through the backstory in your mediations? Well, it depends, right? Because you're always looking to balance enough of of the backstory, the hit what I we call the history of the dispute, right? Like what happened, uh, but you don't want to get sucked down, uh, you know, a vortex of emotional. Uh, muck that's going to get you stuck, right? So it's one of the things that mediators need to do is to figure out how much of the story needs to be told. And listen, sometimes, and by sometimes, I mean, most of the time, one person thinks more of the story needs to be told. And the other person is like, let's not talk about the past at all. And one of the reasons for that, Judy, is that if there is something like an affair or something where one person feels like he or she is guilty, for something or feels ashamed about something, or even if they don't feel guilty about it, they feel like they're being beaten up, emotionally beaten up by the other person. They don't want to expose themselves to that anymore. We've decided to get divorced. So you don't get the opportunity to beat me up anymore. But the other person, the person who feels hurt and who feels like they need some kind of apology or some kind of uh, acknowledgement of the hurt and the pain and what that's caused still is undone with that and can't really move on. So a mediator's job is to figure out exactly what it is that will give enough of a conversation, enough, and I really hate this word because I don't think it's super accurate, but closure to the to the hurt party, the betrayed party, or, or the, the wounded party uh, without feeling like it's just another way to be punished for the for the other person and to facilitate a conversation and just to go back to what i was saying earlier so if these two people are having this conversation and instead of saying you did this and you did that and they're kind of across the table at each other if that person can tell me or you as the mediator and you know how hurt they they felt and the other person can just listen to it and i and i as the mediator or you aren't making it a blaming thing. This is just an experience that the person had. I felt really hurt when I found that out. I felt like our life was a lie. I felt like whatever the feelings are, those I statements expressed to another person who who the people genuinely feel is there for both people because mediation should feel like that. The party should feel like the mediator is there for both of them, even through those in those difficult times. Then that can be, again, a real shift in the way that conversation is having and an, and an apology might be heard where it wasn't heard before. And, and I know you might think that that could happen in therapy and it should happen in therapy, but, but I, as I think, first of all, I think that our jobs as mediators is a lot easier than a therapist's job because we're trying to help people come apart and a therapist is trying to help people stay together. But it, it just become a, it can sometimes in mediation become a lot clearer what is actually needed to move on than it is in therapy for some reason. That's my experience. Okay, so let's let's do a hypothetical. Um, presumably, there's an affair. Presumably, an apology has been rendered prior to the filing in the setup to decide to get divorced. 
But do you think that when it comes time for mediation after the filing has begun, do you think that the the one who's felt betrayed needs to hear an apology more than once and maybe in the presence of a mediator to bring it full circle? What do you think? Maybe. Yeah. You know, I think if, I think the answer is probably if those issues keep coming up again and again and again and again. If they don't, they don't. You know, if if it's done, uh, then it's done. Or if it's, you know, it's pretty much moved on, then I don't think they need to. Uh, I think that um, if it does keep coming back as something that needs to be discussed every single time or, you know, frequently, then you got to go back and deal with that because otherwise the person who keeps raising it is never going to be able to move on from it. We have to do something so that they can move on. And if they can't move on, Judy, then they shouldn't work in mediation because it's not going to, there, there may not be a way for them to continue to discuss and be uh, present for those conversations if all of that hurt just keeps flooding back or maybe that's a reason to bring the attorneys into the room so to give each person the support they need to keep the conversation moving forward instead of kind of circling the drain about the past understood understood um before we go into who is right for mediation and, and who is not what quite ready for mediation when you're in a situation like this where, and it doesn't really just have to be about infidelity, it could be about anything that happened sure. where one person feels that they need an apology maybe more than once. Do you ever ask for the room separately with each person so that you can possibly ask the person who's being asked for the apology to maybe say it another time to, or ask why it's, it has a real apology ever been given. Do you deal with the apology part of the request? So I have a general policy of no caucusing, meaning no separate meetings. And I know that's a little maybe out there, but the reason for that is one thing that ends up happening I have, uh, is that if, if I have a separate meeting with the husband and I have a separate meeting with the wife and it could be two wives or two husbands, you know, with two spouses, two spouses. And, and I, and each person tells me what it is that's most important to them. Then the person who ends up with all the important information is me, but they're deciding. So then the, what's a secret, what's not a secret. I don't want to hold a secret. I don't want to reveal something. So I don't, I, I find that that, is is problematic and the second reason is that when people come in and and they know that I'm going to have a separate meeting with one and then with the other the other person cannot help but wonder what I'm hearing what I'm thinking what I'm saying in in that in that separate secret meeting it's I mean it's not secret that it's happening but what's the contents of it so what I like to do instead is to say all right I'm going to have a separate conversation with each of you but I'm going to have that separate conversation in the presence of the other. And it simplifies things and it, and it makes people a lot less suspicious about what it is that's happening. And usually when I say this to parties, 
that they're like, oh yeah, well, that makes me feel a lot better because I'm worried about what might happen if you're having a, a separate caucus meeting, a separate meeting with the other person. So the way that I do it, and I say, listen, it might go a little bit slower in the beginning, but I promise you it's going to go faster in the end because there's no little pocket of unknown about, that's going to come back up and kind of bite us on the derriere later on. And so I would have that conversation with the person there in the room in the presence of the other person, it might not be quite as deep, but it would also be, I think, uh, perhaps more effective because the other person hears me have that conversation and they and they get to observe it. Oh, my gosh. You just brought up something so very important, and that is being the container for privileged information that actually might be able to hurt or help the forward-moving mediation, but you're stuck as a mediator because the confidentiality aspect of mediating, uh, not only the confidentiality aspect of being together with the couple in the room, and at least the mediator not talking about it beyond the confines of that room, but if you were that type of mediator who did do caucuses, and you know so many are, but I was trained in, no, you stay in the same room. So I get what you're saying. But you raise a point that I've never talked about on this program, and that is what does a mediator do if they are caucusing, having separate conversations in separate rooms, and all of a sudden you're told something that could be damaging to the other person and you were asked not to say it? You're now in a very tough position. You may have to end the mediation and take yourself out, right? Yep, absolutely. I mean, one of the rules that I have right from the beginning is I'm not going to hold secrets. So I don't like to have separate conversations and I'm not going to, and if someone sends me an email with something secret right away, I, I usually say this, listen, if you send me an email that says, do I need to disclose a safe deposit box full of gold bullion? I am going to copy the other person in my email that says yes. So don't do it. You know, don't, you will have disclosed. If you disclose it to me, you're disclosing it to both. And so that's one of my rules because I don't think the mediation can really work unless there's a transparent exchange of information. People need to know what they need to know in order to make the decisions that they need to make. And it's not fair to say, well, we're going to mediate, but I'm going to keep secrets. We're going to mediate, but I'm not going to tell you what you need to know. We're going to mediate, but it's going to be an uneven playing field. No, not with me. Gosh, this is a refreshing conversation, to say the least. Let's go to who is right for mediation or what makes a media what can the participants do to be right for mediation ready for mediation and who might mediation not work well for yeah so i think that mediation is a wonderful option for people who feel that they can and want to speak for themselves not necessarily alone without support but if they could they would be able to articulate what's going on for them with help and and negotiate for themselves and and to come to an agreement based on their own personal criteria considering what's important to the other person as well uh, that but one that makes sense for them based on those criteria 
I think that uh, there are some people who, who would like to mediate but feel they don't have enough information. Well, we can remediate that situation. There are people who feel like they uh, it's hard for them to get a word in edgewise. We can remediate that so long as they want to, right? I think that mediation will not work for people who feel that the the playing field is so unbalanced that the the one person just cannot bring his or her voice into the room. So domestic violence comes to mind, right? Uh, you, you definitely, and no one would want to put someone physically in danger uh, by, by bringing them into the mediation room. Uh, I think that there are other ways in which someone can overpower the negotiation, and I've heard as a mediator, if I if I see something like that happening, I'm I'm going to speak up and 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 end the mediation myself. If I feel like uh, there's no room for for that to happen, you know, I'm going to tell you a little story. Is that okay? Yes. So, I took my first mediation training in 1991 uh, when I was a, a very young lawyer because I thought after a couple of years of practice that there really had to be a better way for families in conflict to resolve that conflict without going to court because courtroom is a really bad place. And one of the only things I really remember from that mediation training is that the trainer said, when you want the people to leave, get up and stand by the door. And so as a mediator, obviously an in-person door, not a not virtual door. And I had a couple of mediation where the husband just would not like there was no room in the in the room for the wife or for me. You know, I'd be like, you know, can just trying to interrupt his his stream of chatter, you know, and he was angry. And listen, there were things she was doing that were um, pretty provocative. This wasn't a totally a one-way street, but they're just in the mediation room. It was extremely hard for anybody else to get a word in edgewise. So you know what I did? I got up and I stood by the door. And I said, you know, please, you know, I think you should leave. I don't think this is going to work. And he's just like, what, you're kicking us out? I'm like, yeah, there's no room in here for anybody's voice but you. You're only person who can talk. I can't talk. She can't talk. So you should leave because this isn't working. And he said, Catherine, would you please come back in and sit down? I, I think we can make this work. And we did. It was just shocking. We did. And then, and then a few days, a few years later, I was actually getting on the train uh, and I, I walked, I got on the train, I was a few minutes early and I passed him like sitting there in the seat by himself, you know, the mediation's over there, divorced. And I'm like, oh my God, oh no, oh no, no. <laughs> and then I went, I sat on my seat and I, I started to eat my lunch because I was all ready and he gets up and I'm like, oh, oh no, oh no. And then he came over and you know what he said? He said, you know what, Catherine, I just wanted to come over and say thank you. You really helped us a lot. So sometimes the, the, the people who really are hard to manage or who really can't seem to make space, seem bullying, right, actually just need some boundaries set. And so those people, you know, you can give up on them right away if they want to, if they both want to. I think that mediation will not work if one person is or both people are out to punish the other person. The mediator, the mediation parties must be willing to work toward an agreement that works for both of them and not just for one of them. If one person says, this doesn't work for me, if it works for you, mediation won't work. 
So those are some criteria. And, and another thing is that it can be very challenging if, if, the, if the couple is involved in a very competitive dynamic where it's a, you know, it's a win and lose situation. So in order for me to win, you have to lose. And that happens on all these issues. That makes mediation much more challenging. And in that case, it, it's not that it would never work, but I would only want to do that kind of mediation with the lawyers in the room uh, and, and really participating in the mediation. Catherine, if first of all, I love the story. Thank you for that. That was great. I live in fear of seeing some of my clients at the grocery store and me not even recognizing them sometimes because you see so many people and it, it's hard that there's only one of you, but to uh, to see somebody years later and for them to give their reaction, what a wonderful story, though. And so good for any mediator listening to know this, that you do have to take a stand. Somehow you must add balance, create balance the best way you can, or let them know that this is imbalanced, not to make anybody wrong, but unless something changes, and only you can change it, participants, then let's not do this right now. I, I That was just so perfect. Yeah. Um, there's one time though, and let's talk about this, in a mediation where the mediator actually does have to give some guidance. Oh, wait a minute. I forgot. I'm so sorry. I lost my train of thought. I do want to go to the mediator saying how they think this is should go if there's... Um, an impasse. But um, what do you do? This is what I wanted to first ask. If one person wants to bring an attorney and the other person can't or doesn't, hasn't sought legal advice, how do you handle that? I think that's a very tough situation and not one that I particularly encourage. And, um, and here's why. And this is what I tell them. Here's my concern about that is that if one attorney comes in and that attorney advocates a legal argument on behalf of her client, and, and instead of giving legal information like a professor would, here are the pros and cons, right? They're just saying, here's my argument and I'm going to win. Then the mediator is in the position of educating the, uh, the parties about the other view of the law, which can sound a lot like representing the other party. And that can end up, I think, coming around and feeling like a disadvantage for the person who brought the lawyer in. So it, it's, it changes the, the, the dynamic in the room in a way that's really problematic. And if they, if they still want to do it, uh, then I would want to have a conversation with the three of them, so four of us, about what that lawyer's role is going to be and how active a participant, how vocal she's going to be in the room so that it's really clear what what the role is, what the support is, and, and how it is going to be that we don't end up skewing that, that feeling. Now, I just want to say that, you know, Judy, sometimes in mediation, when you have lawyers involved, you end up with pretty much a negotiation between one party and the other party's lawyer, right? And that can happen with the best of intentions. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It can be that the one party feels really, whether or not 
the lawyer is there representing that person, the party feels really in, in, on top of the numbers, pretty on top of the options, pretty on top of what will and will not work, not just for him or her, but for the other person as well. And it's totally not only capable, but wants to engage in that conversation where the other party doesn't want to and isn't comfortable, wants to be present in the room, but doesn't really necessarily want to engage in the negotiation. So, uh, however, I still think it's a really great idea to have a mediator in there because the mediator can facilitate that conversation and make sure that it's not, you know, kind of going off the rails and, and, and make sure that the party who is being spoken for by by the attorney and the other attorney also are brought in and are paying attention to the conversation and and so uh, that they're part of the process as we go along and so it doesn't just kind of become a two-way negotiation which it can go south really really fast when you have that going on so what do you do when it's clear to you that one party has received legal advice and it was good. They're negotiating from what you know the law to be in your state, which is New York, and the other party just hasn't. And what they're asking for is kind of off the charts and more than likely would not be granted if they took it to court. How do you handle that? Yeah, I would say then give them a divorce 101 lecture. And just say, you know, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about divorce law in New York, which I often say to people anyway, whether or not they have their lawyers in the room. And one thing that I really don't want to have happen when I'm the mediator is for there to be a surprise for the parties. If they're in mediation without their attorneys, I don't want them to come back in and say, oh, I went and talked about what we were talking about here and I learned this thing about the law. So I say, you know, maybe it would be helpful if I were to give you a, a a summary of New York law, you know, I call it divorce 101 and what the uh, what the areas are, how the courts make determinations, what the likely range of likely outcomes. Now in New York, the the range of likely outcomes is is maybe more broad <laughs> than it is in other states. You, you know, so uh, you know, but there are some presumptions, but there's a lot of stuff that's left to a court's judge a judge's discretion in divorces here. And it's a little bit more complicated than Professor Internet might uh, per, uh, you know uh, are you talking about going to are you talking about going to Google Law? Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So um, you know, I like to say, okay, so let's go through those things and and then in a kind of more generic way, instead of saying you're wrong, you know, you've got this wrong or you're right. Uh, I think that that gives them the, the option. I think it's a little more complicated when parties come in and they say, my lawyer said this thing, uh, you know, the lawyer, you, and, you, and you know that they probably didn't say that thing because you disagree with that thing, right? So, you know, my lawyer said this. And so then you have this question, you know, one of two things has happened. Uh, either the client, and this happens all the time, has misunderstood or misinterpreted what the lawyer says. So I never think to myself, oh, yeah, that lawyer said that. I think either the, the client misinterprets it or they're using it on purpose to make an argument in the room, right? And so what I usually do when that persists is to say, you know what, let's bring your attorneys into the room for a session or a half a session, you know, and, and let's see 
if we can have that conversation because it's impossible for us to negotiate with someone who's outside the room. So if your attorneys are really involved in this conversation and giving you advice like that, then we need to bring them into the room, at least for a session, so that we can hear it from their mouths and we can tell them where it is everybody is coming from and then see what they said. That's that brilliant. Usually, I love that. that. I'm sorry to interrupt. It's that okay. Wonderful. Well, that usually separates out the person who is misunderstanding from the person who is mis, uh, misusing <laughs> their legal, legal advice. And so, uh, but that's really not the reason. The reason is, is if the person is relying on a person who's outside the room, we're never going to be able to settle because that party is going to feel stuck between the mediation and their lawyer. But it doesn't have to be their lawyer. It could be mediation and their dad you know, the mediation and a new partner. So th- those things, when there's somebody outside the room who's who's influencing what's happening inside the room, to the extent we can bring that person into the mediation, that's something I always want to do. I love that. Th- that's great. I- I've never heard anybody uh, say that before. So before we go into the nine ways to hire uh, a divorce attorney, which I'm looking forward to, There is a situation where everybody does their best, the parties do their best to come to a resolution with everything in their settlement agreement, but they just can't. They just can't. Do you ever do what is called the mediator's best assessment of the situation and give them what you think might be the best way to either resolve or look at resolution or move it forward beyond what you can do in the mediation? I forgot what it means, the BATNA, B-A-T-N-A. I totally forgot the entire acronym, what it means. It's best alternative to negotiated agreement. So, right. So, yeah, I think that that's a really good thing for people to understand because there's also another acronym, WATNA, which is the worst alternative to a negotiated agreement. And so uh, the BATNA and the WATNA include not just what's, but how's, right? So, you know, often, I think maybe we talked about this before, Judy, but sometimes people, someone thinks, you know what, I should have a $50,000 separate property credit in our home or in a retirement account. And and I think that they really need to understand, and this is one thing that I would certainly do, that you don't just trot down to the courthouse and slide your little chip for your separate property credit you know, through the teller window there and get a $50,000 check. In order to do it, you need to hire attorneys. You need to do discovery. You need to be able to prove it. You need to be able to show the check that went into it. You need to make sure that that check has a, you know, went from one account and you can show it directly going in. You need to be able to get to a point where a judge says you're right. And that could cost you legal fees of $150,000, just making this up as an example. But so, you know, understand that whether or not you choose to, to do that is going to cost time and money and a delay. And so you have to understand that you might be entitled, you might think you're entitled to it, but but it's going to be costly to get it. It's not just so easy that I just trot down there and get it. And, And so thinking about what they're going to do, if it doesn't work out here, then what will you do? I think they need a pretty realistic explanation of what that looks like. And that's something I would do it. You know, I think that sometimes 
I'm not going to say this is what you should do, but I say, like, in my opinion, and I'm not going to lie here, that the range of likely outcomes should you go to court is between this and this. And your lawyer is going to argue this and your lawyer is going to argue this and the court's going to make a determination where in that spectrum based on this, this and that. And so you got to understand what it's going to take to get there. And so let's talk about what your options are for settling. One option would be leave mediation, go to lawyers. Another option would be if the lawyers aren't in the room, let's bring the lawyers into the room. Another option would be go to a a private judge and get either get a ruling or get a, an opinion as to what the likely outcome is. And, you know, I'm not going to exhaust all the options here, but let's talk about what your process options are before you just go like, we're done. And then maybe mediation can be a part of that, or that there's just one issue you can't agree on and all the other issues can be resolved here. And that other issue, you know, we find some other way to get some expertise in because generally when people come to mediation, they're not gung-ho on the idea of going to litigation. No, they really aren't. And it in the middle of a mediation, when things get tough, it really disheartens me to hear well, if we can't settle here, we're just going to go to court. You know, my response is the courthouse isn't moving anytime soon. No. We don't have to threaten court. It's there if you need it. And I'm okay if people need it. Let's focus on what we need to get done here in mediation. And I try and keep moving that that threat of the court aside. But, you know, if you need court, you need court. If you need a decider, you need a decider. You know, nobody's brought up yet this um, option of a private judge. Would you just flesh that out a little bit? What is a private judge? Yeah. So, I mean, there's basically two ways that can happen. People can use a private judge. One is as an advisor. You can go to an experienced attorney, matrimonial attorney. We've been talking about divorce, but whatever the topic of the mediation is, and get an opinion from that person as to what he or she thinks is the likely result in court. Or sometimes that trusted advisor, experienced person is a is a retired judge. And or you could do some form of of arbitration where you say, you know, we've worked all this out in mediation. The only thing we can't agree on is the house. And the only thing we can't agree on is alimony or whatever it is, right? And then you say, all right, we're going to submit that one issue to an arbitrator, a private judge, and we're going to pay that person to render a ruling. And again, it could be binding or it could be just advisory and see what that what happens. I mean, generally, I have never, Judy, ever had a case that left mediation and went to trial and where a judge made a decision after the trial. Never in my entire career has that ever happened because what happens is they settle along the way. So if you're going to settle along the way anyway, why not shorten that process? See if you can settle by getting an opinion right now. And, and what, why do they settle? They settle because they go into a settlement conference, they go through the discovery process, and the judge kind of says, listen, this is the way the wind is blowing. This is what I'm going to do if you go to trial, you know? And, you know, maybe I'll hear something at trial that changes my mind, but unless, if it turns out to be the way it seems like here, this is what's going to happen. Then they go out in the hallway and settle the case. If you could do that in sort of in the connected to the mediation instead of having to spend all that money and all that time, Sometimes people want to do that. And all that emotion. And sometimes you do have to spend the emotion. How can you find a private judge? I think that you could uh, 
uh, first of all, ask your attorney. Uh, they have that. Um, and then uh, you can Google it since we just said don't go to the, the Google but uh, and, uh, and, and look that way. Yeah. So maybe whatever city you're in listening uh, on Google search bar, uh, private judge and put your zip code in. You know, yeah. you'll start bringing that, that person closer to you. Now, let's talk about the nine tips to hire the right divorce attorney. Sure. Well, the first one is to understand your options and your process options, right? So one of my favorite expressions is to a man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. You want to make sure you go to an attorney who is willing to talk about mediation, willing to talk about collaborative law, and willing to talk about negotiation, not just litigation, and and to be working with you to see how involved you will be or want to be in the negotiations themselves and working it through that way. Understand that there's more than one way to get through this. Okay. That's tip number one. Okay. And I have to reinforce this because it was brilliant. You want to look for an attorney that fosters negotiation over litigation. Yes, you do, because statistically speaking, in New York, 97, 97% of divorces settle before a judge makes a decision after a trial. And if you're not in New York, that statistic is 95%. You go to the doctor, he says 95% chance this is going to happen. You're either going to feel really good or really bad about that. If they told you it was 95% chance you were going to win the lottery, oh my God, I put my entire life savings into the lottery, right? So 95%. So you know you're going to negotiate. You know you're going to negotiate. You want to make sure your, your lawyer knows how to do that, is willing to do that, and isn't going to lie to you about what's actually going to happen. Okay, thank you. Point number two. Point number two is you should interview at least three attorneys. I know that sounds like a lot. You love the first one. It's still a great idea to know what's out there and to talk to different people and see how they handle the situation in different ways. Just so you know, you don't ever have, you don't have buyer's remorse, or if you do, at least you know what you're talking about because lawyers see your situation differently. They might have different advice, but most importantly, they have different chemistry and the relationship with you is going to be different. So I think you should make somebody who you should talk to at least three. Okay. And third tip is to talk to people you know who've been through divorce, and it can be awkward to uh, talk to them about it. I've had clients say to me, I don't know anyone who's divorced, and I'm like, yes, you do. There's a lot of uh, Facebook groups about it, uh, you know, and so, Ah. you know, to get some... Real life boots on the ground. This is what was, this was, and it's what their experience is, isn't necessarily going to be your experience, but at least some of the issues that you might not have thought of, they'll, they'll help you with. And there'll be some sort of, I think, real um, good advice that comes from that. Number four is make sure your attorney is a specialist in family law and they have the relevant experience. Your real estate lawyer who's done a couple of divorce law cases is not your best choice. Uh, And so uh, that is something that your business lawyer shouldn't do this for you. You should get a specialist. We're not allowed to use that word here in New York, but some of those practices really focused in this area. Okay, so I want to input something here. 
in California, I'm in Los Angeles, there are companies, universities that will provide out of the human resources department lists of people for various things, lists of therapists and lists of attorneys. I have not met an attorney yet that was on one of those lists that knew family law inside and out. They are not vetted properly because I don't know that they can be vetted properly. I don't know. So I just want to put a little warning out and you can maybe uh, respond to this. I want to put a little warning out that I know it's free and, and that's, that's the deal. It's free and people want to save money. And my God, we know how much attorneys cost. It's incredible. But I have literally in 10 years not seen one attorney that it was experienced like they needed to be in family law. And they've been in this office in mediations. Your point. I, I agree. <laughs> I, have, I have nothing to add. Okay, to good. <laughs> Thank you. That was my footnote. Number five. Number five. And I think I've already pointed this out. You want to make sure that your attorney is a good negotiator. Chances are this is going to be a negotiation. You want to make sure that they're working on their negotiation skills and not on just their litigation skills or their legal argument skills. So what do the negotiation skills look like? Can you give us an example? Yeah, you need to be able to hear what the other person is saying. And so, uh, you know, um, Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Third Alternative. And the book basically says, in a nutshell, that if you and I are in a negotiation or in a dispute, that if I'm willing to listen to you about what's important to you, and you're listen, willing to listen to me about what's important to me, and each of us are willing to say what it is, then we can come to an, a, a third alternative that's better for you than what you came in thinking was the best result for you, and better for me than the thing that I came in thinking was the best result for me. The third alternative is better for both of us than what we thought was our best option walking in the door. And that may not be true in every single case, but a good negotiator is looking for those opportunities, looking for the opportunities to add value and to create value in the negotiation for, a, I, I hate this expression, but for the win-win, look at it instead of thinking everything is a zero-sum game. It doesn't always have to be that way. And, and to think about it that way rather than in the frame of the law. Okay. And, and I think that's perfect because I've seen enough examples in mediation where they really do. They are the people you just described. They want to listen to one another. Uh, they want to uh, definitely absorb and consider the proposals on both sides. But neither, none of the proposals really meet the needs of each person. And that's where the mediator or the attorney comes in to be able to give a fresh perspective to, to well thought through. Uh, suggestions for resolution, but because there's so much experience on the attorney side dealing with multiple cases, that person can really come up with something that neither party has thought about, but, but could be perfect. Either the attorney or the mediator could do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Be a good negotiator, uh, not a litigator. Only. Only. Right. Exactly. Right. So the sixth tip is you want your attorney to be reasonable and completely candid with you. You know, if you're saying something that is just never going to happen unless the other party agrees, you should know that. 
right? And you want to make sure that they are reasonable and, and willing to listen to reason on the, on the other side. Again, it goes back to being a good negotiator. You also, number seven, want to make sure you hire someone who's compatible with you. You know, the studies show that people feel after their therapist closest to their divorce lawyer. And that's really true because this is going to be a very intimate relationship. You're going to be talking about your money. You're going to be talking potentially about your sex life. You're going to be talking about your children and your wishes, hopes, and dreams as a parent. I mean, there couldn't be anything more intimate about it. And you want to make sure that you have a relationship with someone you feel like you can trust and who's got your back when you're going through those things. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And then uh, number eight, uh, make sure that you ask the right questions and that you are uh, prepared for your meetings with your attorney, because when you aren't, you're going to spend money trying to get prepared. So come in to the consultation with a list of questions. I personally like it when clients come in to interview me, if I answer all their questions before they've gotten through the list, because I have a pretty complete uh, view of what they what they should know, but they should make sure that they come in with a list of questions and uh, and are, are, are ready to feel like they got the most out of the time with them. And the ninth one is pretty simple advice, is that is to just hire an attorney you feel good about, that you feel good that that person's gonna have your back, is gonna let you know what they need, what you need to know, and is someone you can trust and talk to and be totally candid with. Catherine, great list of nine. Let's go back to number eight a second. Can you give an example of what some questions should be? Yeah, and honestly, for your listeners, I've put together a PDF about what questions you should ask. I'd be happy to share it. I can email it to you or, you know. Wonderful. This is wonderful. I'll definitely put it in. It'll be in show notes. And then the blog that comes the day after the interview. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, But, you know, it's things like, what what does the attorney expect uh, the negotiation to look like? What they're going to do? What the options are for resolving the the, the divorce? Given that the chances are very likely that it's going to be uh, negotiated, those are the kinds of things. But I'll send it over. And okay, and they should and the client should be very forthcoming about some of those issues that um, will factor in heavily, like, is there any kind of substance abuse going on with yourself or the other spouse? You got to be honest because the worst thing that could happen is you're not honest with your attorney and it comes back to haunt you later on and the attorney can't do anything for you if they don't have a complete picture of what's going on, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I learned very early on in my practice is that the courtroom is a very bad, bad place to find out that the other side has a good point. You don't want to be surprised that something you didn't know is comes out in testimony from the other spouse about your own client. Oh, gosh. I mean, we've seen scripted courtroom dramas like that, haven't we? Yes, okay, but I wish it was just drama, Judy. I wish it was just drama, but unfortunately, it's the truth. Yes. Yeah, well, these dramas are written about real life. I want to end with something that you said that was so philosophical to me, and I wanted you to share that with the listeners. You said divorce is a people problem with a legal consequence. Could you sure. flesh that out? Of course. So, you know, 
one of the problems and one of the reasons why the courtroom is a very bad place for families is it tries to force a legal solution onto a people problem. And I think as lawyers, if we think about the divorce as being a people problem with a legal consequence rather than a legal problem, that we can help people find a resolution that really makes sense to them in the context of their lives rather than in the context of the law. And we can then make it work from a legal perspective rather than trying to make the people live their lives through a legal legal construct. And, And that's what I mean about that. I think that in mediation, we really have the opportunity to do that in a really powerful way. And it really makes sense. You know, one thing, just one example of that is nobody, nobody has a child or adopts a child and cradles that infant in their arms like this and looks down and goes, wow, I've got custody. Nobody does that. That's not a word that's in the people's lives. Like until you have a problem, that's like just not an issue. And so if we think about it, I think we do so much more service to the people we work with. If we think about the problems from their perspective and their words and their constructs, and then work the law around it instead of the other way. How long did it take you to get this sensitive with an attorney's role in family law? You know, I think it was the combination of my experience as a lawyer and getting divorced myself Mm. and really giving a lot of thought to what my personal experience was. And I almost left the law because I thought I couldn't put the two things together, my own core values about what's important and the way I was practicing. And then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to give it a shot. And I've given a lot of thought to the kinds of ways in which we can make a difficult situation better for people and make the transition just more humane. Just lovely. I'm so happy that we had this opportunity to talk and for you to share your thinking with everybody because I was uh, so looking forward to this interview after we initially talked. You bring you bring some unique thinking to the table, which I truly appreciate. Now, even though you're in New York, how can people get... It's going to be in show notes, but just for the purpose of ending yeah. this um, interview, how can people get in touch with you? The best way is to through our website, which is uh, www.miller-law.com. So miller-law.com. And, uh, you know, mediation is something we can do around the country. So uh, wherever people are, we'd be happy to try to help. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. This has been completely delightful. You've been listening to attorney Catherine Miller of Miller Law Group. And, um, I, I, if I've learned, you've learned too. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening as I appreciate the time you've given to this and certainly the spirit with which you are listening, which is to, I believe, obviously have a much more positive experience in divorce. Uh, please, you can reach me through SpeakPipe on my website, theamicabledivorceexpert.com. Give me any suggestions, any feedback uh, for this topic, suggestions for other topics. And as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else. 